0: Regulation after regulation. I think there are outdated
1: regulations that need to be New changed. New government regulations, There's which were created to protect the employees. The
0: regulations are $1.8
2: trillion. Dollars There's a
3: regulation that doesn't make any sense. Why do you keep Is it? this
2: really the best we can do? Welcome to the Regulatory Transparency Project's fourth branch podcast series. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. everyone. We are so pleased to welcome you all to It Can't Be Done Live. My name is Nate Kazmarek. I am Vice President and Director of the Regulatory Transparency Project for the Federal Society. This is our second virtual panel for the new film, They Say It Can't Be Done. We hope uh, the movie inspired you and made you think more about medical developments, healthcare, regulatory policy, and the wonderful possibilities that innovation can create. Tonight, RTP and Just Ed Firewater are thrilled to be hosting this timely and important discussion on the future of our health with truly an all-star panel. I'm pleased to introduce our moderator. Her name is Christina Sandifer. She, Christina is an executive vice president at the Goldwater Institute. She develops policies and litigates cases advancing healthcare freedom, free enterprise, private property rights, free speech, and taxpayer rights. Christina is a graduate of Michigan State University College of Law and Hillsdale College, go Chargers. Uh, We're also happy to have Christina's help on RTP's FDA and Health Working Group. In a moment, I'll turn it over to Christina who will guide tonight's discussion. Once the panel has had ample opportunity to converse, we'll go to our audience for questions. So please think of the difficult questions you'd like to ask of our panel and send it to us via the chat on the right side of your screen. Uh, thank you very much to our panel for joining us. Christina, the floor is yours.
4: Great. Well, thanks so much, Nate. And thanks for uh, to everyone for joining us. And I have to say, I've been introduced many times before, but I've never actually had someone say, go Chargers. So that uh, that's great. Hillsdale will Um pride. I'm so excited to moderate this panel. We have such distinguished guests with us tonight. Um, and what I really love about this film, and hopefully you share my enthusiasm if you've seen it already. If not, you're in for a treat when you do. Um, is that, you know, these are really difficult times uh, for our country, for the world. Uh, This film gives me hope. It gives me optimism about the future because it really shows how human ingenuity can address really complex problems, especially in the space of healthcare, which of course is our topic tonight. And uh, of course, the film also explains that we can really fully unleash the power of human ingenuity to address these problems if regulators allow us to do so. And that's really what we'll be talking about on the panel tonight. So I want to introduce to you our uh, distinguished guests to talk about these topics. First up, we have Dr. Julie Alexson, uh, Dr. Alexson is the Chief Manufacturing Development Center Officer at Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine. Julie has more than 25 years of experience in clinical translation of cellular therapies and regenerative medicine products and she's an experienced scientist who excels at delivering innovation, driving milestones, strategic planning and regulatory expertise. So basically everything that you want to know about, she's going to be able to answer those questions um, <laughs> pertinent to, uh, to to this discussion. Uh, next up will be Dr. Betsy McCoy. Uh, Dr. McCoy is a patient advocate and a former lieutenant governor of New York State. Uh, she's the founder and chairman of the Community to Reduce Infection Deaths. So this is a national campaign to stop hospital-acquired infection. And She's also a New York Post columnist and the author of a brand new book that just came out this summer called The Next Pandemic, available from Encounter Books. My copy actually could be being delivered as we speak because Amazon told me it's out for delivery. So I look forward to reading that. Next up, we'll have Dr. Joshua Sharpstein. Uh, Dr. Sharpstein's Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement and Professor of the Practice of Health Policy and Management at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He served as the Secretary of Maryland Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, um, the Principal Deputy Commissioner at the FDA, Commissioner of Health of Baltimore City, and as a Health Policy Advisor for Congressman uh, Henry Waxman. He's an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine and the National Academy of Public Administration. And finally, last but not least, we have Dan Troy. Uh, Dan is uh, VELO's Chief Business and Administration Officer and General Counsel. He served as General Counsel of the FDA. He served uh, in the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice. He's clerked for the D.C. Circuit Judge Robert Bork, and he's also been a partner at two nationally known law firms and currently chairs uh, the U.S. Chambers Litigation Center. My favorite part of your bio though, Dan, is that in 2013, the Burton Awards named him a legend in the law. And so this is actually my new uh, goal now in life, is that I would like to be called a legend uh, in the law. (laughs) Anyway, welcome to you all. Thanks so much for being here. All right, great. Well, let's dive right in. Um, We're going to have
1: each of our speakers give brief opening statements, and then we're going
4: to open it up for discussion. So let's start with you, Julie.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Christina. And thank you for the organizers. I'm really excited to be here tonight. And um, as we're talking about the future of health, um, the title of the session, regenerative medicine is the future of health. It's really um, the capacity to regenerate, Um, repair bodies and or rejuvenate and there's a lot of emerging therapies that are shifting really the paradigm from treatment to being able to cure patients. So at the institute, uh, Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine, we're doing product development on different types of cells, genetically engineered cells, tissue engineered organs, biomaterials and devices. Our mission is really to help improve patients lives. With regenerative medicine and and leading a global transformation from treatments to cures, so we're hoping that we can see the potential of revolutionizing healthcare through engineering um, organs and in bodies and or stimulating the body um, to repair themselves. And as you all know, there's a huge organ shortage. Um, There's greater than 100,000 patients that are on a waiting list, and we see 20 patients that are dying each day because they can't get an organ. So what, what can we do for that? There's also $3.6 $3.6 um, trillion dollars in healthcare costs annually. So this is, this is um, super high. And how can we look at being able to bring that down? We really think that regenerative medicine has that capacity if we can cure that there's opportunities to bring that down. But first of all, bring quality of life to the patients. I leave the clinical translation as Christina said for regenerative medicine and we have a unique model where we have everything under one umbrella, all the way from the basic discovery work through phase early phases of clinical trials, phase one and two. And this really starts out with a dedicated um, faculty. We have world-renowned faculty. Dr. Tony Atala founded the institute in 2004, and he was the first and his team to be able to engineer a laboratory-grown organ, uh, a bladder that was implanted into a patient. There's a lot of technology that's been developed since then. We have about 13 projects in the Manufacturing Development Center that are moving forward, and we have several that are already in clinical trials that we're quite excited about. We work closely with FDA. FDA has been able to help us to move things forward. There's several different exciting pathways that they offer, such as the RMAT, where you get a lot of face time and they're able to help give you advice to move things forward. Besides that, there's several others as well. And FDA has really evolved over the years. I've I've been in the field for a long time and I've worked with them for a long time, but I feel like they've done a great job at being able to educate us, bring guidance documents for us, webinars, and, and all kinds of things, even emailing someone and they're responding within a short period of time. So I feel like it's really a different, um, it's a different organization, the way they're trying to work side by side with people to move things forward. Um, I, I feel like regenerative Medicine is a game changer in healthcare and Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine is, is really excited to be able to help move that forward. Thank you. <laughs>
4: Excellent. Thank you so much. I look forward to asking you some questions. Such a fascinating field to be in. Uh, Let's move it on to Betsy.
3: Thank you. Well, I am delighted, really very honored to be part of this eminent panel. And I thought to myself, what would stimulate the most exciting discussion? So I thought I'd give you Three examples from the regulatory world, an example of profound regulatory failure, an example of regulatory overkill, and then an example where less regulation will save more lives than more regulation. So let's start with um, regulatory failure, because that's where I've been particularly uh, concerned. My organization, the Committee to Reduce Infection Deaths, their goal is to educate the public and hospitals and regulators and state lawmakers about the perils of hospital infection. It's one of the biggest causes of death in the United States. Amazing, something that hospitals give you. A conservative estimate is 75,000 deaths a year, but in fact, it's far more than that. And hospital infection is the major impediment to allowing seriously ill patients, such as cancer patients, to take advantage of all the medical breakthroughs that science has to offer. Because if you can't go into the hospital because it's simply too dangerous, you can't take advantage of those breakthroughs. And we saw that in a small example recently with COVID-19, many hospitals... Stopped treating patients for other matters, not simply because of the surge in demand, but also because they were so concerned they would not be able to stop the spread of COVID-19 to patients who didn't come in with it. And in fact, thousands of patients, as well as healthcare workers, did contract COVID-19 in hospitals. What is the cause? Well, it's mostly <clears throat> inadequate cleaning, inadequately cleaned equipment, rooms and operating rooms. And the sad story is that we have the technology, we have the knowledge to prevent this. But what has been lacking is the will, and particularly the regulatory support from federal agencies, as well as state governments. A lot of suspicion of what the for-profit sector has to offer, combined with Uh, it's something I would call these regulatory agencies being co-opted by the hospital industry. So they keep saying they're reluctant to ask hospitals to do more when in fact, these infections add about 35 billion a year to our nation's health tab, um, in addition to costing so many lives. So this is an example where regulation could do far more. When I founded RID, not one state required hospitals to, uh, to uh, disclose their infection rate. Now, 38 do. But that's only once a year. Even now, the CDC and state government's do not require hospitals to tell you when there's an outbreak. So if you're a pregnant woman going into the hospital, you're not going to know if the hospital you've chosen has an outbreak of MRSA in the neonatal intensive care unit. So that's that's a problem of lack of adequate regulation and support for progress that we could be making based on the technology we already have. The other two I'll go through very quickly. Overkill, we're living through it right now. And that is the overkill of closing down the nation uh, because of COVID-19. We now realize uh, that that was a very blunt instrument and uh, not appropriate for all parts of the nation. And we should have targeted our assistance, rushed assistance, for example, to nursing homes where half the deaths in the nation have occurred. That's an area where my organization is particularly focused. Uh, And instead, we closed down restaurants and businesses where younger, far less vulnerable people work. Now, as we see a second wave of COVID-19 taking over much of Europe, uh, even the top leaders in those countries are saying, the one thing we're not going to do is shut down entirely again. And most of you who are legal experts probably noticed the Pennsylvania decision, the decision by a federal court in Pennsylvania earlier this week, knocking down Pennsylvania's very rigorous. really uh, draconian lockdown rules. So I would say in ending that part of it, that what we probably need in the near future is for each state to pass an anti-petty tyrant law (laughs) to limit the duration and scope of what governors can do in the next pandemic. There will be a next one. And finally, let me just say in two sentences that Probably the best example of when more regulation or more lengthy regulation is not necessarily better is the debate the nation is engaged in right now over emergency authorization of a vaccine. Listening to all the politicians, you'd think that that somehow the FDA intended to cut corners and rush this vaccine out, regardless of the safety and efficacy data, but in fact, this emergency use authorization was devised by Congress in 2013 after the failure of a previous administration to come up with an H1N1 flu vaccine in time for the peak of that disease threat. And um, what this does, this emergency authorization, is simply look at the data as it rolls out and make a decision rather than waiting till all the data from the clinical trials are in. The standards of efficacy and safety are still there, and most importantly, the same expert panel will still be making the decision. So I hope we have lots of discussion on those three topics and many others. And again, thank you for including me in this really interesting evening.
4: Great. Well, thank you so much. And I am all for an anti tyrant law uh, under all circumstances. So I'm going to add that one to my uh, colleagues' list of legislation. All right. Next up is Josh.
5: Thanks so much for having me. It's good to be here. So um, I wanted to take as a jumping off point the documentary, which I um, was pleased to be able to look at. And hopefully, a lot of the people who are watching um, were able to see. As well, Um, and you know, coming from um, my own background, working for Henry Waxman, political appointee for Barack Obama, wasn't quite sure what I was going to see, whether what I would agree with or not. And I was pleasantly surprised that there were some significant areas of agreement. And the first area of agreement I'd point out is that the premise of the film is the public health. We have these major challenges, challenges threatening the planet, like climate change. Um, the uh, enormous challenge uh, faced by patients with um, failing organs. These are public health problems, and I teach at a school of public health. My career has been in public health, and I think the basic orientation to asking what is the direction that improves health that the documentary had is exactly correct. And frankly, these days, if I can find somebody who says, let's improve public health outcomes and let's use science to get there, we're basically agreeing on all the major things. I used to take that for granted, but not so much anymore. But I felt that the documentary did have that starting place. Um, I I would just point out uh, just briefly that innovation is an important path, I completely agree, to advancing public health to address um, these big challenges. It's not the only path. Um, In the field of public health, we look at innovation. We also look at what the evidence is that works, that's in place now. We think about the barriers to doing things that could actually make a difference in the short term. But um, for the purpose of this discussion, I'm in agreement. I want innovation that advances public health. Um, I'm also in agreement with many of the speakers that there is a very important need for regulation. And and I don't just mean um, by saying that, uh, Julie, who said that FDA really is helping um, move forward with the cell technologies, or Betsy, who said, you know, it's time for regulators to ask hospitals to do more. But the speakers in the documentary, uh, someone who said, I don't want to die from drinking milk. We don't want another thalidomide. And uh, it really matters when there's good regulation, um, not just to prevent horrible things from happening, but to facilitate innovation. Um, And uh, the uh, from Wake Forest, I I saw a good article where he said, we need to make sure these technologies are reliable and reproducible time and again before you put them into patients. It is people's confidence in in innovation that it's safe and it's understanding of how it's safe and effective that regulation uh, can bring. Um, And certainly, uh, we see that now for COVID therapies and COVID vaccines. We want safe and effective products. And while I didn't totally agree with all the details of what Betsy said, the general idea that we have an agency that is going to do a good job, and I do have confidence in the career staff at the FDA to do a good job figuring out which vaccines are the ones for me and my family to take, that's essential. We need that. And I think the idea that there is regulation that supports public health is firmly in that, um, that movie. Um, but we also um, want... Or don't uh, don't want regulation that doesn't support public health. And I agreed with a lot of the points made in the documentary there too. Um, how where does regulation go wrong? It goes wrong when special interests, vested interests, manipulate the regulatory process. And there were some examples of the meat industry. I have had some run-ins with the meat industry myself. Professional societies using regulation just to block entrance. I'm actually sympathetic with some of the work that the Cato Institute does there. Um, There uh, are examples of outdated regulations that don't apply well to new technologies, and those regulations need to be modernized. I'd add a couple other examples that aren't in the movie um, for regulations that don't support public health stigma-based regulation. And I am uh, very involved in um, efforts to address the opioid epidemic. And unfortunately, um, very effective treatments, methadone and buprenorphine, uh, face very high regulatory barriers at the federal and state level without evidence to support them, based in large part on the stigma of treating um, uh, opioid use disorder with those medicines. I also think that uh, there's a problem in this country with ideology-based regulation, where it's not really about science or the public health. Health. it's about achieving an ideological end by another means whether that's on the left or the right so from my perspective the question is not is all regulation bad it obviously is not it's how do we get more good regulation and less Bad regulation. How do we get the regulation that supports the public health and not the regulation that undermines the public health? And so I think part of that is recognizing that blanket statements that regulation is fundamentally averse to progress or innovation are just not true and not helpful. You wind up with policies like freezing all regulation when, in fact, you need regulations for things like cell therapies to move forward. What is helpful? Three things to mention. Uh, maybe four things. Number one, transparency. I think transparency about the regulatory process so people can understand that is very important. When I was FDA, I started and led the transparency task force. We listened to a lot of businesses about what they wanted from FDA and um, some of those things we were able to do, but some we weren't and I wish we had, um, particularly to tell people when guidances would be coming out that would help them, Um, but other types of transparency. Aligned economic incentives. We can talk about that more, um, but I think in the movie, that was clear on the climate example, that a carbon tax would be quite helpful to align economic incentives for a healthier planet. Um, resources for scientific agencies, for regulatory science, to be able to adapt regulations to changing technology, just like Julie mentioned, for cell therapies and uh, regenerative technologies. And finally, integrity in the regulatory process. We need protections against interference by vested interest, by politics, by narrow political considerations, whether Democratic or Republican, and by ideology, whether left or right, we should have science-based regulation that advances the public health. Thank you.
4: Great. Thanks so much, uh, Josh. You know, one of the things I really like, one of the points that I that you made that I really like is that there is so much that brings us together. Um, I think in these times that seem very hyper-partisan and very divided, it's important to remember that a lot of us come from the same place, um, wanting to advance healthcare innovation and and do its best. And so uh, I think this is going to be a really great discussion knowing that we're starting with that baseline. Uh, Finally, uh, Dan.
0: So, um, first of all, happy Constitution Day, everybody. Uh, The Constitution was signed today in 1787. Um, As the co-chair of the FDA and health uh, committee of the Regulatory Transparency Project. I want to welcome everybody, and I'm particularly grateful to our excellent, upstanding panelists. Um, I especially want to uh, give a shout out to Josh. So this is the second time you reminded me in the green room, this is the second time we're meeting. But from the perspective of, I was I was chief counsel during Bush 43. and. You know, actually, under the Obama administration, FDA restored its scientific self-confidence, which it had lost after Biox. So, if you look at the number of approvals, approvals in the late 2000s fell to like the 20s, and they got up to 40 during the Obama administration. So, anybody who thinks simplistically that well, under Republicans there are lots of approvals, and under Democrats there are not, it is so much more complicated and nuanced than that. And you know, i actually in violent agreement with Josh. You stole a lot of my thumb thunder on on reviewing the movie. I was struck by how much it highlights the need for regulation to support and enable innovation. Smart, appropriate, transparent regulation. It was great to hear Julie and what you said about FDA. So I work for a new company called Valo Health, which we're trying to use compute to reduce the cost and size of clinical trials. We're trying to discover and develop drugs faster, cheaper, better, and we're going to do things. We're going to try and do things like simulated clinical trials. We're going to need FDA. There's no way we're going to be able to do that without being really hand in love with FDA. And we're going to need FDA to be well funded. I mean, Josh made the point about resources. You know, we have at my company brilliant, incredibly intimidating, but you know, not intentionally. Ph.D., M.D.s, computational biologists, and they need to be able to have people at FDA who can actually understand what they're trying to do, and actually, as Julie says, sort of guide them. Um, so, you know, here are the kinds of questions that FDA is going to need to opine upon. So, machine learning, there's a, a a brand of artificial intelligence, machine learning, that it's actually a black box. The, the machine comes out with answers, and we don't actually know why. Other brands of artificial intelligence, but we do know why. But the question is, what if something works, but we don't actually understand why? Right now, FDA is like, no, you have to be able to understand why. But if what if we have a really high degree of reliability from a, from a compute? process from an algorithm, but we don't actually really understand as humans how it came to that outcome, but that outcome seems to work a lot. That's going to be a really hard question for FDA to wrestle with. and, And the question is like, what degree of reliability will FDA or other regulators require? A good example is telehealth, right? So we tolerate a degree of mistakes from doctors. We need to get into medical malpractice, but nobody expects that doctors are going to be right 100% of the time. Will regulators allow telehealth where or, or actually digital health where it's not right all the time, right? That's going to be a really, really tricky question. By the way, one of the things on the telehealth point, I really hope that it is an example of the type of regulatory change that comes out of COVID-19 that we will stick with um i also hope that the sort of urgency that we have seen with respect to therapies and vaccines i mean i hope we keep some of that because that's actually you know it, it, we shouldn't actually only have to be in a pandemic to pay attention to the needs of patients who you know if you're a sick patient whether you have covid or you have cancer there's a degree of urgency for you. That said, as Josh says, this has to be safe and effective and repeatable and reproducible and based on science. And you know, we ha- and, and and we do have to have faith, as I do, in the career professionals at FDA. Uh, I also hope that one of the things we'll remember, um, and it's something that I happened to be at FDA. I got there three weeks before 9/11. One of the things we did is we partnered with the private sector. We understood. That at FDA we test, we regulate, but we don't actually do. And I think feel as if the government has kind of gotten that right with respect to the COVID-19 vaccine. I think we got that sort of right post-9/11 at FDA. I don't think that the CDC got that right with respect to testing. Right. right? So the the the, the, whatever the mistakes were, but the mistake of saying we're going to do it on our own and we're going to we're going to be the ones to supply the test and not waiting to partner with the private sector until. You know, much later, I feel like that was a really big mistake. Um, the last point—it's a little—it's not covered in the movie, but I, it does get to a certain extent to Josh's point about aligned economic incentives. We are today relying, hoping, praying that the pharmaceutical and the biopharmaceutical sector will, you know, come to our aid with vaccines, with therapies. You know, we literally are relying on that sector to save our lives. And yet, at the same time, on a bipartisan basis, it's not a partisan point. We are proposing price controls. I can tell you, I, I was the one thing that wasn't mentioned in my in my bio. I was the general counsel of Baxter so Smith Klein, which is, by the way, the largest vaccine manufacturer in the world by volume. For ten years, drug companies need to be able to earn an adequate return on interest. What GSK had the the, the first um, what seemed to be workable Ebola vaccine. Monsef Slaoui, who was the head of our vaccine business, who's now the head of Operation War Food. he was sitting at the table with the WHO and GAVI and NHRA and CDC and, and guiding the world literally through the Ebola vaccine. Now, the GSK one turned out not to really be the, the one that won, if you will, but what happened was the world lost interest in the Ebola vaccine and GSK got stuck with literally $150 million loss. So the next time that a vaccine crisis came up, you know what GSK said? And GSK was an incredibly altruistic company as companies go, won the Access to Medicine Index award under Andrew Witte like five times. But the next time a a vaccine crisis came up, we said, let's let Sanofi do it. So you have to actually compensate companies for the things that they do. I have been in the room when the board of directors asked the the CEO and the head of R&D, well, should we just give that money back to the shareholders in the form of dividends or buyer buybacks, or should we spend it on R&D? If there's no adequate return on investment, the investment is simply not going to be made. So the last point I'll make is you know, cutting drug prices, 40 to 50%, would reduce R&D projects by about 60%, according to the National Bureau of Economic Research. There's a University of Connecticut economist who basically showed that if the EU price controls had been in effect from... 1986 to 2004, we would have 117 fewer medications, um, fewer medicines available. So, as we actually rely on the pharma sector, let's not slay the goose that we hope will lay and has laid the golden eggs. So, again, thank you to the panel and thank you for the opportunity to be here. Appreciate it.
4: Great. Thank you, Dan, for those remarks. Uh, I want to uh, even the first question that you Josh but um, but I hope that others will chime in after after you've answered um, y- you've been talking about you know assuming that we are all coming from the same baseline that some regulation is desirable or, or that we have to have some regulation out there uh, the next question then becomes okay well how do we design appropriate regulation and in your remarks you, talk a little bit about how we want to make sure that regulation is based in science rather than, you know, maybe based um, uh, or biased in favor of special interests or based on politics or ideology. And I think it's true that you see this both on the left and the right. Um, There are stories out there about how, you know, various forms of uh, birth control, for example, or um, the pregnancy tests were delayed in being uh, approved because of politics on the right. And of course, you hear the same accusations made against the left. Um, so my question to you is, I think we can all get behind, or at least I think everyone on this panel can get behind the fact that that stuff should be taken out of the equation. We need to move forward. And if we're going to have regulation, it should be science-based. The question is, how do we get there? Because that's a lot easier than it sounds. And that's especially true, I think, when we talk about um, some of the points that both you and Dan have made and others about the, the interest in having a partnership with the private sector, right? So how do you do that in a way that actually benefits the public at large and that doesn't become such a cozy relationship that now you've got special interests sort of capturing the regulatory process?
5: That is a great question. And it was partly the question that I faced when I started FDA as the acting commissioner. Because at the time, there was a series of articles in the Wall Street Journal that made the allegation that there was a a device that had been approved over the objection or cleared over the objections of FDA scientists um, after some congressman had intervened and the commissioner had gotten involved. It was a big, um, kind of a big mess. Um, and the question was, you know, was FDA just going to pretend that that didn't happen? Were we going to do anything about it? And what I did as the acting commissioner is I asked the agency's uh, chief attorney, um, the Mike Landa, chief scientist, Jesse Goodman, and chief policy uh, person who all were there before I got there, um, and uh, that was Jeff Shuren, to look into what happened. And the very first question about this was, how do you define integrity in regulatory decision making? You know, that was the first thing that they had to do, and they came up with a definition um, that had three uh, three parts, and I'll just briefly say them. Number one, it should be based on a rigorous evaluation of the best available science, um, and part of that was the appropriate expertise, including the use of advisory committees, is brought to bear. So you get Great smart people from the outside to advise the agency. You don't assume you know you know it all, but that's one way that you also can clear up whether there's something that is really based in science or you know some some other agenda. If you can get a really strong advisory committee. Number two, it's reached and documented through a process that promotes open mindedness, um, and that includes. Um, Transparency. They they wrote the basis of decisions and processes should be adequately documented and explained to internal and external stakeholders. So I think advisory committees, transparency, and finally, um, made without inappropriate internal or external interference. And so you have to be able to say what that looks like and what shouldn't happen. You know, and people should be empowered. There should be whistleblower protections. There should be ways to stop in a regulatory process from getting invaded in different ways by um, by uh, biased parties that are really don't have ultimately the public health as their main priority. So I think those are the kinds of things I think that definition reasonably stands the test of time and it points in the direction of some of the things that maybe we could agree to would be very important you know that this these decisions shouldn't be, for example about the COVID vaccine should not be made um, in the White House. they should be made at FDA. Great.
4: do others have any thoughts on that? I do.
3: Um, pertaining to the vaccine, I think I made my point that the emergency use approval is actually laid out very clearly in statutory language to ensure that it will be made by the, the, the experts on the independent panel selected by the FDA, the very same ones who will make the decision on the final authorization or approval of the drug. Um, But I'd like to look at this a little differently. It seems that, uh, in my, 20-year battle to reduce hospital infections, one of the things I've seen is that many regulatory bodies on the state and federal level are too closed off from the innovation occurring in the commercial world. I'll just give you two examples. One at the New York state level, that's what I'm most familiar with, having spent many years in Albany. And that is that in Albany, they had a rule at the Department of Health Somebody who works in the Department of Health, regulating hospitals, for example, or handling something like hospital infections, well, they could talk to a university person or another government person any day of the week. But if somebody from the for-profit sector, an innovator, wanted to come talk to them, they had to wait for vendor day. It was like somebody who works for a company would have a big scarlet letter on their forehead. And the result is that many of the people in that state regulatory agency had no clue about the newest innovations, the most effective technologies, in my case, to battle hospital infections, something that is caused mostly by bacteria, in some cases, viruses or fungus and mold, on uh, inanimate objects in operating rooms, on bed rails, on pulse oximeters, things that we can eradicate. So uh, my second example happened Rather recently, this summer, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention put out a 17-page guide on how to reopen society after COVID, how to reopen schools, churches, offices, then restaurants and other venues. And when I read it, I was struck. It could have been written 50 years ago. In fact, almost 100 years ago, it said put the desk six feet apart and open the windows. It didn't talk about antimicrobial keyboards for offices, antimicrobial coatings, using copper doorknobs the way we know can stop the the spread of bacteria or viruses from the many people who open or close the door. It didn't talk about the many uh, ways we now have of deactivating viruses in the air, insertions into the uh, HVAC systems to continuously, non-toxically, automatically improve air quality, including from these viruses. I was so struck that this 17-page guide was literally devoid of technology at a time when we really need it, and in some cases it's costly technology, but not as costly as shutting down our entire economy. So I would say that in some instances, in an effort to prevent too much influence from the commercial world, Regulators are insulating themselves from the good news and the new science and the capabilities of improving
4: health. All right, well, uh, Dan, did you want
0: to say something to that? So I, I have experienced both. I have experienced times at FDA and people at FDA who just would not meet with someone from the private sector. They thought they were verboten. On the other hand, I have on occasion had to defend FDA Calling in people who were trying really cool new things. In one case, it's kind of a cloning technology, and because and FDA wasn't wasn't actually interested in it because they actually, this cloning is illegal. But but the technology, they they are there are many many PhD MD scientists. By the way, FDA has more PhD MDs per capita than any government agency, including NIH and a lot of you know these people are really interested in developments in the science so i think we should encourage that um you know i think the better regulators the um, are the ones who are open to hearing from the private sector obviously there's you know the issue of capture i'm not going to say that that's not an issue but you know the by and large people who go into a place like FDA, they could make way more money somewhere else, and they're doing it because they're public spirited and they really believe in the mission of the agency. And uh, you know, I'm not saying mistakes aren't made. I'm not saying sometimes people don't, you know, get it a little too close to industry. But I, I, I felt as if there was a pretty good, healthy tension between the private sector and the regulators, and you know, they each knew that they needed each other, which they do. And that, you know, by and large, uh, people were all trying to, from different perspectives, you know, trying to kind of do the right thing.
4: Julie, I want to switch gears a little bit and turn to you. I, I have to say, I, the part of the film that focused on. Uh, the organs and the tissue development was just fascinating to me. Um, and I believe, and I think, Dan, maybe it was you that used the term bespoke uh, in the film, which I am going to borrow now and use when I talk about it. Um, I'm actually a beneficiary um, of a 3B printed uh, device. I have uh, rheumatoid arthritis and I had to have double jaw joint replacement. And back in the day, you know, they would select one, two, three, you get like four sizes, basically the doctor found the one that was closest to your face and then they just put it in and you just dealt with it. Um, Mm -hmm. and of us who have had, you know, one size fits most clothing, you can imagine what that would feel like in your jaw. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I was the beneficiary of this amazing technology. So what they did is, you know, I got an MRI and they 3d printed these joints that were made specifically for my face and my head. And, um, it it was just incredible. The downtime I was out of work for a week and I was just back and, um, and I just, you know, didn't have to have to my uh, husband's dismay. I didn't have to have my, my jaw sewn shut or anything like that. And, uh, so, so I can, I was just fascinated to hear about sort of what that next step is where we can take. Tissue engineered organs, where you can make organs that involve people's own, that are individualized for people, that involve their own DNA, um, just fascinating. So, what I want to ask you is, what are the roadblocks? Because you know that's interesting to all of us on this. It's interesting to somebody like me who has seen the benefit of of these, um, you know, these innovations. What are the roadblocks that? that like prevent these technologies from bringing, from being brought to mass commercialization and being widely made available to patients.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um, So it's kind of interesting because yesterday all day I was at a public policy meeting for regenerative medicine and this is pretty much what we were focused on. is like, what are the roadblocks? And one of the huge roadblocks is when you look at regenerative medicine and the number of clinical trials, there's about a thousand right now But if you look at tissue engineered organs, it's a small amount. And then compared to all the clinical trials, the regenerative medicine is a fairly small amount. And so when there's funding available, uh, especially like during COVID, um, where there was a lot of funding available, Bard had funding available for the vaccines and so forth, a lot of the cell therapy regenerative medicine funding got pulled back. So funding for the clinical trials and being able to move these products forward is key. I mean that that's one of the things that's really challenging. Even you know if it's if it's a small company, if it's a larger pharmaceutical company, it's going to be much easier. But where we're innovating things at the institute, it, it's hard to keep it going unless you have funding. We had a lot of funding from Department of Defense. We have philanthropy and other you know. Um, state type of funding, but that's one of the huge challenges. The other challenge is manufacturing these products. You saw a little bit on the film of a tissue engineered urethra, but those are all pretty much handmade. Um, The scaffold that we use is produced by a company and then it comes in and we have to work with it from there. We have to Get a biopsy from a patient, get the cells, expand those, seed them on, and then they're maturing in what's called a bioreactor, a little oven device for several weeks. Um, it's that whole manufacturing process is very rigorous. And so that's something that is a, a bit of a roadblock because what we need is reagents and supplies to be able to move forward easily. When I say that is of a certain grade GMP, that allows us to use those and make the product with it. We don't necessarily always have that. There's not a, enough money yet in regenerative medicine. As it becomes more commonplace, we're going to get more money and that'll bring the cost down, which would be amazing. But that I would say manufacturing, the cost of goods, um, just being able to fund, fund the clinical trials are, are really some of the most important roadblocks that we see right now. But, um, I will say that, you know, listening to the comments with about FDA, one good thing about the U S and FDA is that we don't have to prove potency right out of the gate. And people might say, you know, well, you're infusing these things and you don't really know whether it's potent or not, if it's a cell therapy, but they see it's working. Um, but they don't necessarily know what growth factor it is or or, or what's going on because some of these cells home to the site of injury produce the growth factors and Hmm. stimulate the repair. The FDA gives us um, time uh, until the end of phase two to be able to determine exactly what that is. If you're in the EU, you need to know that out the gate. So I think that they've they've been really accommodating with a lot of the innovative therapies that we look at as long as it's safe. It can move into phase one
4: yeah i want to see if maybe you can build on this a little bit one of, one of the things that we mentioned in the film was that the, the federal food drug and cosmetic act is really geared toward the mass market right bringing products to mass market for many people and that really doesn't seem to always jive with the types of products that say julie's talking about or things that you know technology makes uh very bespoke or very um, directed toward one particular individual. So, do you see that as a roadblock to innovation? That, the fact that maybe uh, our regulations, maybe congressional laws are are really aimed toward a thing of the past and not necessarily toward the way or where medicine is going, the way of the future?
0: Um, yeah, so um, I'm. I'm so I, I, I do think that FDA, going back to the time of compounding, which is a product that is made right for a particular person at a particular time, FDA has struggled with compounding. I mean, we used to joke that if it's you know if it's on the corner, it's okay, but if it's in the middle of the block, it's not. I mean, FDA has really struggled with compounding, and it has struggled with things like cell and gene therapy. That doesn't mean there aren't there are any better places in the, in the government to regulate it. But, you know, we, we do have statutes that, I mean, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act was initially enacted in 38, obviously substantially amended in 62 and many times since then. Um, you know, the device statute, I actually like better because it's much more modern and it actually allows for much more titrated regulation, you know, with classes one, two, three, because a device is everything from a Q-tip to a heart, um, you know, a heart, monitor, a heart implant. Um, so, you know, but, but our... Re- Statutory tools are always going to be behind the times. They just are, right? And even regulation and guidance is always going to be behind the times. The question is getting the balance right of moving quickly enough, being transparent enough, but also not being too much of a break on innovation. It's not easy. It's not easy. Uh, one of the things that you know Peggy Hamburg, I think, talked about in the film is regulatory science, and that's something that absolutely needs to be supported um, and. You know, like I said, for from our perspective, my perspective, you know, FDA can't have enough MD PhDs, computational biologists, smart people who are interested in innovation, interested in the science, and we're trying to get that right because the industry can't really move forward without the guidance of the agency. But it's it's not it's not easy adapting regulatory and statutory tools that you know. The first food drug, does, food, food drug act was 1906. That are that are you know have so many barnacles, if you will, on them from a legal perspective to modern day. But that's that's the challenge.
1: Can All I right. just comment I on go that? Go
0: ahead. He, go ahead.
1: He, he's right. So it took a long time to get Seber to um, understand the regulations for cell and gene therapy and, and biologics. It did. It took a long time. But I feel like they're they're there now. We've got regulations and they're trying to improve it, but you're right. You know, when something new starts up, they're talking about, you know, in in the movie, the the food science or what have you, it's challenging. It's challenging to get to that point. That's where you need to bring people together in partnerships and speak to Congress and so forth to be able to move it forward. We need to all be really active. Uh, You know, if it's just one or two of us or small groups, it's not gonna move. So yeah, I agree.
4: So, Josh, one of the things that you said um, in your introductory remarks was about aligning incentives, and, and I, I want to ask you about that um, with you know th- thinking about, okay, how can we make regulations more effective? Well, there are different ways to regulate, right? Rather than maybe just having a thou shalt and thou shalt not. How do we maybe align economic incentives in a way that gets the private sector, that frees the private sector to be able to do what they do best while still making sure um, you know, that, that we have some kind of regulation?
5: That, that is a great question, which I totally want to answer. But before I do, I want to ask you a question, Christina, if that's sure. okay, based on the, uh, your last question and the answers that we heard. The major roadblocks to the regenerative technology that Julie mentioned were not regulation. And Dan mentioned regulatory science, which I think was kind of mocked a little bit in the movie, the way that they presented it. And um, I wonder, given the importance that you've heard from Julie for an FDA that is able to understand the science and what Dan is hoping for his technologies, that you know, the Federal Society, the Goldwater Institute, should endorse the, a strong FDA with science-based regulation protected from interference and not um, take the position that regulation per se is averse to innovation. Do you think that's unfair to ask, given the conversation that we're having today?
4: Well, I I think absolutely you're right that regulation should be science-based and without stepping too far outside of my moderator role because as Nate knows, I will do that and then I'll never come back. (laughs) But, But I will just say, I will just say that I agree with what you said. I think some of these things, as all of you have admitted, and as Dan said, are easier said than done. Or sometimes we may all agree that science-based standards are a good thing, and then the question is, well, what does that mean, right? We've seen all sides, both sides of the political aisle, argue that they are doing things based on science, and then the question becomes, well, who's science? As, a, as an attorney that um, you know is often in courtrooms with experts right? You can have an expert on the government side, you can have an expert on the other side, and both experts can argue that they're the right ones. And so, um, so I do appreciate this sentiment. I do, I would very much endorse a system that is more based on science and that embraces innovation than one that is going to be.
5: And I just just think we should stop the, like the language of like permission, free innovation, you know, that, that, that by its nature, regulation is a problem. It's not true. You heard Betsy calling for more regulation you heard Julie saying that it helped her technology so i'm just I just want to emphasize that point because I think we there 's a lot that we agree on, but it 's sort of sometimes wrapped up in. Um, you know, rhetoric that just doesn't help. So, me- you know, I, I wanted to make that point because I, I actually think there's an awful lot that we've on and I could give examples. Of when I was at FDA, I walked down to the review agency. We, I heard from industry, and you know, we we uh, were able to get great people together around the table to to rethink. The way that things were um, being regulated for the um, advancement of innovation, but th- that's what we want, and I just, I just hope that we're able to see the commonality um, as as these discussions go forward.
4: Before you answer my other question, Josh, sure. I think
5: which I will, yes.
4: in response to you. So let's go to her first, and, and then then we'll go back to the new question. Well, I was just going to point out that in an
3: era of a pandemic, or maybe I'll say it this way. There's a silver lining to this pandemic, believe it or not. (laughs) One silver lining is that uh, we are advancing innovative technologies that have already been available, but were being ignored. I'm going to give you another example from my world, hospitals. We have been pushing the committee to reduce infection deaths. Has been pushing hospitals for years to use point of care testing, that is, instead of taking a culture and sending it out to a lab and waiting 48, 72 hours to find out what kind of infection that patient has, using a technology that's 100 years old, growing it in a petri dish. Right? We've had for many years now a point of care testing using genomics that could that could tell you in 45 minutes or an hour, using a little toaster size or smaller device at the nurse's station, does that patient have strep? Type B strep, for example, if you're giving birth to a baby. We wanna know those things, right? Now, fortunately, because of the pandemic, the need for point-of-care testing has finally been recognized. Point-of-care tests from Cepheid, Abbott, all these other manufacturers are flooding the market goodness, it's a great thing. And I'm hoping that as a result, when I walk into a hospital in the future, I will see point of care tests at the nursing station for the kind of common hospital infections, staph, strep, C. diff, that are costing so many lives every year and we didn't have answers to them. So that's one thing. The other side of that is that in a pandemic, It's not just regulation, it's delay that can cost so many lives. That's why I brought up very briefly the issue of the emergency authorization for a vaccine. Of course we don't want lower standards, but the idea of improving the timeliness of at least a narrow approval process, as Congress suggested in 2013 would be important because now we're looking at September, and the predictions are that either another 200,000 Americans will die by December, or according to um, one of uh, Vice President Biden's uh, advisors, Erwin Redliner, it could be as many as 400,000 more. So of course, delaying that approval, you can actually weigh the the delay against the cost of the lives that could be saved by a more uh, rigorous and timely vaccination process. So I just wanted to come in with that and say, in a pandemic, uh, we see the cost of delay, and we also see the silver lining, more innovation pushed through more rapidly.
5: Great. Thank you. I actually think Dan, Dan's point about telemedicine, I couldn't agree with more. I mean, it, 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 Similarly, it, that the adoption of telemedicine, extremely important for patients, and it really is reflecting some barriers that really didn't need to be there. Um, addiction is a great example and all the requirements around addiction, addiction treatment. One quick thing, Betsy, I'll tell you is that the EUAs were around before 2013. I signed them when I was at FDA in 2009, some of which we did over the weekend uh, for H1N1. Um, so, to your, your question about um, uh, uh, economic incentives, which you were, you were very, very nice to take my other question, so I appreciate that. but I will answer your question on economic incentives i think it 's important i think it 's very hard for a regulator to kind of push the tide back into the ocean if there 's an enormous economic incentive going the other way from what the regulator is trying to do by and large i don 't think that 's an issue with drugs and devices. I think generally speaking the the drug and device industry, their long-term economic interest, even their short-term economic interest, is in having um, their products be safe and effective and having FDA bless them as safe and effective. I think that there's a pretty good alignment. But in some times, there isn't. And a good example of that might be tobacco products. And I'll just give a specific example on electronic cigarettes, which, um, as you may know, uh, have been an enormous problem for youth. I don't want to get into the All the challenges of electronic cigarettes. But let's say we were to agree, hypothetically, that we don't want 16 year olds getting addicted to nicotine through electronic cigarettes. And, you know, um, the FDA has a number of tools to try to regulate that. They could, um, and some of them I think they should be using more, but you know, they they took some flavors out, they did certain things. That's one way to do it. Another approach that would be complementary and possibly more effective would be an economic incentive where you could have a survey of those types of electronic cigarettes that are used by youth and have a tax that is proportionate to the youth use of electronic cigarettes and if you did something like that which has had that concept has had bipartisan support before for tobacco products if you did that then you would suddenly have an incentive for the companies not to have young people use it and that could really much more clearly align the interests of the companies with the 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 concept of behind regulation and you don't have this cat-and-mouse game that's going on now where The FDA bans the one type electronic cigarette, then you get disposables that kids are using. And and so um, to avoid that kind of adversarial situation, if there are ways to use economic incentives like that, I think that that might be a way where you get the goal of uh, products that could help smokers quit without having 16-year-olds become addicted.
3: I knew we'd agree on
4: things. (laughs) Julie, I wanna I wanna go back to you um, briefly. So we we talk sometimes about this thing called the knowledge problem when we talk about regulation, right? The idea that even though we have, say, an FDA or other government agencies that are staffed by really really smart, um, well credentialed people, you know, they can't always. No person can always foresee what the future is going to bring um, or what technological advances might come. Uh, and so, of course, this again can be problematic when you have a system where regulation is supposed to deal with technology, and our regulators just can't possibly foresee all the technological advances that are going to come, especially uh, again in the field of healthcare. So, uh, how how do regulators either poorly or or or, well, um, address innovation in your field, in the field of regenerative medicine, without, you know, to, to achieve the goals that you all agree is, are important safety, efficacy, and, and what have you, but without needlessly delaying or stalling, um, as, as Betsy mentioned, or, or even completely stifling regular, uh, innovation? Yeah,
1: that, that's a great, great question. And the FDA actually knows me by a first name basis, all the way up to the top, Peter Marks, because I'm always asking questions. I'm, you know, I'm the one that's working with tissue engineered organs or organoids or, you know, strange things that usually don't come to their desk. Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about on the movie was the bioprinting, and nobody's gone to clinic yet with, a bioprinted with human cells in it. So you talked about the bioprinted structure scaffold. Yes, that's that's already being used. But where we can um, produce, say, a urethra that's bioprinted, that that's something that's not there yet, or or a nose that actually has the patient's cells. Those those are things that are being worked on. So, um, you know, as you share these things at meetings with the FDA and the FDA accepts all invitations lately, it's amazing. I I've done a lot of different panels with FDA and we had, um, yesterday we had all the way from Peter Marks to, you know, years and years back of the, of the FDA commissioners were participating in this meeting, but we do have their ear. And so I'll use the example of bioprinting and that they came out with regulations you know guidance document with what they thought was important for advanced manufacturing as they called it bioprinting and they also allowed a special pathway called cat which is for these complex products that you can go to them with a, a few pages of a document and they'll come back and answer your questions in a short period of time so I think once they understand that it's something that's possibly going to move forward to clinic, they try to get everything in order so that they're they're looking at how they can help you i've been I've been in the field for thirty years, and I remember the beginning was was very different, and we it wasn't really for biologics. So it was blood. I was in a blood center but and and everybody was afraid when they walked in the door, but it's it's very different now because. They want to help. They have these documents or they, they produce these pathways. The RMAT is a pathway that helps regenerative medicine move forward that was funded through the 21st Century Cures Act. But if you know it's a, a, a medical need and you've um, treated already with it, they can fast track your technology. So there might be an opportunity if you have efficiency and safety that you'd get approval at phase two. Um, you know, and similar to some of the immunotherapies that you see, which is amazing. So I do feel like they're responding, but they have to understand what the consideration is. I I went to them not too long ago with organoids. We're doing drug testing with organoids, but maybe in the future, we'd like to see how to use those in in therapies or potentially for preclinical studies instead of that. So they listen to that. I mean, we don't have the answers for it yet but they definitely take us seriously to try and get feedback. So I, I appreciate that.
4: Anyone else want to comment on that question? All right, well, Betsy, um, you you just wrote this book um, and it's got a very provocative, interesting, uh, timely topic, The Next Pandemic. Um, and in it, you you look at sort of what agency response was like to this pandemic, and there's been a lot going on in the chat box, um, uh, chatter about COVID and about how various agencies have responded. So my question to you is, give us a little preview. What regulatory agencies get the highest marks and which ones get the lowest marks? (laughs) It's fun to be able to
3: mark, right? Uh, The reason I wrote this book is that this isn't the last pandemic. We're in a global society. We know that there will be more emerging pathogens. And um, so the book is really about two things. One is the untold story of how much progress we've made in the the last six months. It's really quite remarkable at getting ready for the next one, uh, whether it's supplying the national strategic stockpile or... Starting a made in America supply chain, or the thing that interests me the very most, which is finally there's now a huge push to improve rigor in hospitals and other healthcare facilities, rigor in infection prevention. And I'll just say as an aside uh, for uh, for those who probably have never read this story, you know that this is not the first coronavirus, and one reached the Western Hemisphere in 2003, SARS. And it's a very interesting story what happened because on the same day, two men unknowingly infected with SARS went to hospitals in two different Canadian cities. Um, And in Vancouver, which has a very rigorous culture of infection prevention, He went to the emergency room, he was immediately whisked into an isolation facility. Everyone wore the proper PPE and no one else in that hospital got SARS. But in Toronto, the man who went to the emergency room, unknowingly infected with SARS, sat in the ER for 16 hours. The man three beds down on the right, who was there for a heart attack, got SARS. The man two beds to the left, who was there for, I can't remember now, got SARS. And 77% of the people who contracted SARS in Toronto got it in a hospital, in a hospital. Either they were patients, healthcare workers, or visitors. So that was our first warning that this could... improving rigor of infection prevention is a really important thing. And it's a major issue in this next pandemic because our, our safety, even this time around, largely depended on what the first healthcare workers did when the first patients came down with it. We saw it rage through nursing homes and it was it wasn't identified immediately when somebody went into the ER with it, and that is a, a major reason it was allowed to spread. So I think that improving, use of re- the, improving the rigor of infection prevention in hospitals and improving the use of technologies that are already available, already available to deactivate viruses in the air, to ensure that bed rails and pulse oximeters and blood pressure cups and wheelchairs are free of superbugs. We could be doing this and saving tens of thousands of lives, even in the years when we have no pandemic. So please come to hospitalinfection.org and read more about it. And if you are going to the hospital yourself, one pitch, we have a lot of information. this up we have brochures like this 15 steps you can take to protect yourself from a hospital infection and i would love it if you would ask us for this information um that's a big part of the next pandemic what we're already doing to get ready for the next pandemic and what we still need to do in terms of grades i think that fema got an a plus surge in hospital capacity to cities when they needed it. I would say uh, in response to one of the other panelists, the CDC gets a pretty bad grade because they didn't realize that by partnering with the private sector, the way the president did To make ventilators and masks and other things, they could have had tests out there really fast, including rapid tests. We lost a a lot of valuable ground because of that fundamental mistake by the CDC. So it's a mixed bag, but uh, I think that in general, technology really offers great promise to getting ready for the next pandemic. In workplaces, in schools, if we installed the kind, let me say it this way we all need to become indoor environmentalists, and we'll like that. We need to become indoor environmentalists. And if we do, if we use now the impressive technologies we have, diluted hydrogen peroxide, UV light, technologies that can make all of those spaces safe day after day, when the next pandemic strikes, we won't have to close things down.
1: Here, here, I'm excited about that. You're right. That's and that's what we're doing. I mean, I see that happening. We we're cleaning with UV and doing a lot more things that we've never done. So it's amazing. I want to read the book.
3: Thank you. <laughs> Page 51 has a big list of things we can do.
5: <laughs> Could I jump in for a quick second? Absolutely. So um I think that uh in addition to the uh important work of hospital infection control, extremely important, there are other technologies that um are going to be necessary as we think about preparing. Um, you know, we want to shorten. The development of a vaccine even further. We want to get testing to be able to be stood up even quicker. All those things, we're going to, there's going to have to be a major investment in the science and innovation. And a critical piece of that investment, it's not enough just to fund the basic scientists, is going to be to support regulation so that people can really understand which are the good and promising um, technologies and which are the ones, you know, and, and what do they need to be able to do to demonstrate that they're worthwhile for the American people people. And so I hope and trust that as um, the legislation eventually moves forward to really think about that kind of investment, that people realize that it's not, let's just give money to people and hope they come up with stuff and then we'll sort it out when the next pandemic comes, but that we actually have regulators who are helping. Just like Julie said, helping with the innovation to figure out you know what are the key goals, what is a sign of something that's not going to be safe, how do you steer these different technologies that's going to be really important as we make that investment. I would just also just put in the two quick other things from a public health perspective that we have to think about for the next pandemic, one of which is really investing in our public health infrastructure. We've had tens of thousands of health officials um, uh, and public health employees have left over the last decade because of massive budget cuts. And we're paying the price. Innovation has to actually get to people to work. There's a saying in public health that um, vaccines don't save lives vaccination saves lives, so you actually have to be able to deliver it, and if you're just focused on that basic science investment and you don't think about the infrastructure to deliver the trust that you need in communities, the ability to communicate, the IT systems, all of that, it's not. It's going to be hard, and, and that is really a weakness that we have as a country going into the COVID vaccination era. And the last thing I'd say is that we have been exposed as a country because of the deep racial and ethnic disparities that we have, the, the shocking increases two, three, four times in rates of infection, hospitalizations, and death for African Americans and Latinos is really shameful. and We should be thinking about why that happened and what we can do as a society to, to make sure that we're not um, facing a pandemic and throwing some of the um, most um, at-risk communities uh, in, into harm's way first.
1: Josh is making a lot of good points. I just want to follow up to say to be able to support everybody. I, I think that the FDA also needs funding because what I'm seeing with the pandemic and COVID when I'm submitting these emergency INDs is that they're, they're calling within an hour. They've got people around the clock. You're working on the phone with them at three in the morning. That's The resources that they need to be able to move this stuff forward has to be increased. So I I, th- I feel like that's that's a big issue. As you talk about everybody uh, down the line ne- needs to get the funding. Dan, you wanted to, to
0: comment? Well, so I just I want to um, echo what again I agree on on the resources point. I think I've made that a few times as have did, uh, Josh. But I want to echo his point on um, on you know the, the disproportionate impact of many of these health impact of these health things. Um, on, on disparate communities and on minority communities. It is shocking. It is something we need to do with. And that's why, by the way, the fact that Moderna paused its trial enrollment in its vaccine trial to get more you know, minorities in the trial was so important because this vaccine is gonna need to is you know because the the disease disproportionately impacts you know minority communities it's going to be really important for that those communities to actually believe in this vaccine, and they're not going to believe in the vaccine if they, if if the trial does not really sort of have you know represent all of the people who are most impacted by this disease. So I thought that was a really really you know good decision on the private sector's part, and that's the kind of thing that we should stand up and applaud and, applaud and support um, when when it happens because that is so important.
4: So we have time for one last quick question, and I want to actually build on on that, Dan, and also something that you said, Josh. You're both sort of talking about that it's more than just government, right? There has to be infrastructure in place. There has to be a belief in the system. Um, And you've also spoken a little bit about the politicization um, of things in government. I would argue that we're pretty polarized uh, in some ways in our nation right now as well and things like Wearing a mask, right, or 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 getting vaccinated, whether it be for a future COVID vaccine or even um, you know something else like the flu, it's it's become very divisive, very political. Um, so how do we address that? And the, and the answer may not be with regulation. The answer may be something else. But how do we address that? Because I think in order to recover from something like COVID and and things like that, you do really need buy-in from the public at large. And I'm not sure we seem to have that. So do you do you think I'm wrong? And if not, how do we address that? Go, go ahead, Dan.
0: I'll take that. I mean, I actually think events like this, right? When you actually sit down and talk to people, I mean, your Twitter and social media, when you actually sit down and talk to people, you know, we find much, much, much more agreement. I mean, Josh and I for, come from very different perspectives, but I think we probably agree in this area on, I don't know, 60, 70, 80% of things. I'm sure we could find areas to disagree on, but but the, the key thing, and this, that's why I'm really, you know, I'm glad for the Federal Study doing this, I'm glad for the Regulatory Transparency Project doing this. I'm really glad that Josh came on um, among other, among everybody else, because it's when you sit down and just really have human human contact and have dialogue, then actually, realize we're not as polarized as the mainstream media and social media makes us out to be, you know. Because I mean, that's in their economic interest to do. But it's you know, I, you know, I happen to you know, be, be a you know a, a a conservative who lives in you know in Montgomery County, Maryland. So I'm most of the people I, I encounter don't necessarily agree with me. That doesn't mean that we can't be friends and we can't you know talk about. Things that we, on which we agree and, and seek agreement rather than disagree.
3: Well, thank you for that. That we all really appreciate and celebrate. Innovation is the answer to so many of the problems we want to solve.
4: Excellent. Well, well, with that, uh, thank you all to uh, to our panelists. Um, and I just want to say that I'm so thrilled that there was so much we were able to agree on tonight. I'm not sure, uh, Josh, that you're going to get me to stop using the term permissionless, but beyond that, I think... uh...
5: (laughs) (laughs) I think we should call a truce on the war on regulation. I think we should be talking about improving regulation, not the war on regulation, not regulation is necessarily antithetical to progress. And I think this conversation is a great starting point for that. And I want to just say, thank you for having me. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate being here.
4: Absolutely. We'll turn it over to Nate now.
5: Well, great
2: concluding remarks, a wonderful discussion. We're grateful to Christina, Julie, Betsy, Josh, and Dan. You've all given us uh, a lot to think about. Uh, Certainly to our audience, we welcome your feedback on tonight's program by email at rtp at regproject.org. That's rtp at REGproject.org. One quick announcement before we go. Be sure to join us next Thursday night at same time, 7 p.m. Eastern. We'll be hosting our next panel, which is on the future of our Earth. That uh, that panel will feature EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler, David Doniger from the Natural Resources Defense Council, Susan Dudley from George Washington University Regulatory uh, Studies Center, and Charles Hernick of Citizens for Responsible Energy Solutions. So uh, we'll see if they can top this great panel tonight. But anyway, thank you all for joining us. Have a wonderful evening. On behalf of the Federal Society's Regulatory Transparency Project, thanks for tuning in to the Fourth Branch Podcast. To catch every new episode when it's released, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Spreaker. For the latest from RTP, please visit our website at regproject.org. That's r e g This
5: has been a Fedsoc audio production.